have to demonize those aspects of the fossil fuel industry, the, the benefits that it's given people. Um, but you have to be honest with your readers about the entire picture. You can't, as reporters, we can't just paint things as entirely good or entirely bad because that's never the situation. It's only the situation in fairy tales, and that's not what we're in. Hey there, it's Julia Piper, host of the Political Climate Podcast. The show is technically taking a break this week, so I'll avoid the formal intro. But I couldn't resist the opportunity to bring you a bonus episode with my extended interview with Emily Atkin, author of the popular climate newsletter, Heated, which you can find a link to in our show notes. Emily came on Political Climate in early December to talk about the fossil fuel industry's climate change disinformation campaign in our episode, Big Oil on Trial. Now, if you heard that episode, you'll recall that her reporting on this issue got Twitter to reverse its new ad guidelines. Interesting stuff. We had a lot to cover in that Big Oil on Trial episode, which also featured UCLA professor Ann Carlson, so I wasn't able to share my full conversation with Emily. And I really want to because we ended up delving deeper into the fossil fuel sector. We looked at a controversy over David Victor, a climate advisor to Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg. And we explored shifting dynamics in the media industry and how to be a responsible climate journalist in this day and age. In case you want to flip ahead, we really start delving into all this around the 20 minute mark. I've been wrestling with a lot of the stuff that we discussed, and perhaps you have too, which is why I wanted to share this conversation in full. We'll be back again in January with my Democratic and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. But in the meantime, as you pack up holiday decorations or prep for a New Year's Eve party, I hope that you find this to be an interesting listen. And while you're here, please give us a rating and leave us a review. Let us know what we're doing well and what we can improve on in 2020. It really helps. So thanks. And here's the show. Emily, thanks so much for coming on Political Climate. So that our listeners know, you recently moved from a full-time position to a contributing editor role at The New Republic, and you launched your newsletter, Heated. So first off, congratulations on that move. Thank you. I actually did something similar with this podcast when I quit my full-time job. And so I can kind of identify with where you're coming from there. It's cool to know that you can do something like that too, right? It's just like, oh, I, it, it, it works. Well, he did totally works. Uh, I am a frequent reader and I know that you've been really successful in your reporting so far, which we'll get into some of that and some of the results of what you have discovered. But first, you know, I wanted to talk about the concept of heated because as you've written and talked about before, you launched it because you're angry about the climate emergency. So describe that emotion, describe the impetus for launching this in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have been covering climate change for a little over six years now. And I'm always seeing this debate about how, whether we should be hopeful or whether we should be gloom and doom and grief. And I never hear whether or not we should be angry. Um, and that's always primarily the emotion that I've felt because as a reporter on this subject for that many years, you see a lot that We've known about the dire state of this issue for a long time, about the emergency that we're facing if we don't do something. And yet people in power, the people that we've tasked to do something, have consistently shirked those responsibilities. 
Climate change is such a system-wide problem. It can't be tackled on an individual scale. It has to be tackled by our biggest systems, our corporations, our governments, our most powerful people. And they've just consistently decided to not take up that responsibility in favor of a short-term profit, in favor of some other short-term thing. And now we're in this position where we have these dire warnings from the IPCC and other scientists all over the world saying, oh, we only have 11 years before we can make these drastic cuts to give us a 50% chance of avoiding the worst impacts. And, you know, we could have had, we could have had 40 years, we could have had 50 years, but we didn't. And that, that makes me angry. You know, we have a system of where we're supposed to be able to hold people accountable. And I wanted to devote my career to holding people accountable for this so that, so that we don't, we aren't all screwed. Um, and so that's why I started the newsletter. Well, I reached out for this episode because um, I know you're specifically angry at the fossil fuel industry. And I think you've been pretty eloquent in the way of describing, you know, why people really are so heated right now against this uh, this sector. Well, the fossil fuel industry is our biggest, our most major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, which means it's our biggest cause of climate change. And we depend on fossil fuels right now for energy, but fossil fuels are not the only source of energy that we can that we can have to produce the energy we need in our lives. Fossil fuel companies have known for many, many years, over 30 years, uh, that their product had the potential to, if overused, cause drastic damage to the planet, to ecosystems, to human life. And when they found that out, instead of grappling with that information and making business decisions to transition away from the use of fossil fuels into renewables or make themselves another type of energy company, they decided to actively hide that information from the public, actively fund, pour billions of dollars into a disinformation campaign that would seep into American politi politics and make it impossible for half of our legislat legislators, that, that is those in the Republican Party, to do anything related to climate change. Because if they did, they would, they would be targeted with the ire of the fossil fuel industry with millions of dollars against uh, their re-election campaigns. And so the reason that we have political stagnation on climate change and have for so long is because of this disinformation campaign. There's a reason why climate denial is a thing and other types of science denial are not a thing. You don't see like cancer medicine denial. You know, you don't see like space science denial. You only really see climate denial. And that's not, that's not a mistake. That's not a, it's not a fluke. That's orchestrated. Um, and it was orchestrated primarily by the fossil fuel industry. What do you say to folks that might think, okay, look, we, we got to this point in our development or economic development because of fossil fuels. You know, they've hurt many, many people. They've also benefited people by uh, providing heat, power, and transport, all that stuff. So how do you think about the transition? Because we have to get from A to B. And so where do you thread the needle there on disinformation campaigns, things that we know are bad and hurting our politics, and also looking at where we're at on the ground with this resource and what we do to get off of it? Yeah, I think that people have, and I struggle with this too, we have a hard time looking at things when they're if they're not a hundred percent good or a hundred percent bad, um, so fossil fuels obviously they've done a lot of good for society. Fossil fuels are the reason why we're the richest country, richest, richest most powerful country. The other thing is that fossil fuels also cause this awful side effect. It's like 
It's like taking a medicine that cures one ill, but also causes this other ill, right? Eventually, you know, if the other ill that, it, that the side effect gives you is, is terminal, then you have to stop using the medicine. And, you know, you can thank it for all it's done, uh, but, but that's just the reality of the situation. It's, it's a terminal side effect, climate change. Um, and so there's definitely a, there's, there's definitely a disconnect between people, especially people who work for the fossil fuel industry by saying, you know, these climate change people are ungrateful. And I think that that's, you know, that's something we have to be really careful about. It's not to say that, it's not to say that we're not grateful for the benefits that fossil fuels have caused. It's to say that the science says that if we don't transition away from them, then we're going to have a really bleak future. And so that's why there's a concept of, you've probably heard of it, just transition, um, which is making sure that any transition away from fossil fuels uh, includes the workers of the fossil fuel industry uh, to ensure that they have jobs, that they have uh, anything that they need to, to make sure that their lives aren't upended by the transition away from their jobs. You know, there's myriad ways that that could work. Um, and there are a myriad policies and groups out there promoting that. Um, but that is one thing we have to be careful of. Yeah, because I think of that in my reporting and storytelling is about the human impacts of all of these factors of the fossil fuel industry, the transition to clean, uh, you know, environmental justice and the human level of someone living that life day to day, I think, is quite different from, say, a fossil fuel executive who's in a boardroom making decisions and thinking about things at a strategic level. And I do think it's important to sort of separate those out. Yeah. And also, I mean, I remember I was at so I was at the Society for Environmental Journalists conference uh, in Colorado in October, and I was on a panel talking about stuff similar to this. And this guy who uh, is a reporter, environmental reporter in Wyoming, raises his hand and he says to me, you know, how am I supposed to talk about climate change in my newspaper? You know, if, if I say some of these things you're saying, everyone in my community who I report for has worked for some way in the in the coal industry and i'm and i'm supposed to badmouth fossil fuels when they've given so much to the community and i'm like that's a really hard question it's a really interesting question too um because you know these reporters have a constituency who really love this industry and what i said to him was i i just said you know you can report on climate change without you don't have to demonize those aspects of the fossil fuel industry the the benefits that it's given people. Um, but you have to be honest with your readers about the entire picture. You can't, as reporters, we can't just paint things as entirely good or entirely bad because that's never the situation. It's only the situation in fairy tales. And that's not what we're in. Yeah, I know. I feel like I often revel in nuance, which doesn't always work in today's very dense and populated media landscape where sort of the loudest and most catchy phrases rise to the top, which I think is fantastic in many respects, but the reality is always complicated. And uh, I remember talking to a representative from the Navajo Nation in Arizona, which have benefited tremendously, or at least economically, from the coal industry there. And so how do they now have a leading role in the clean energy transition? That's very TBD. Yeah, no, and and, and I I've actually had similar conversations, but at the same time, like I went to go visit this indigenous community in Alberta, Canada, right? Who's their entire, their entire community has been polluted by downstream 
uh, tar sands extraction, right? But at the same time, the tar sands industry gives everyone all their jobs. So it's about it's about whether the industry has given these people a choice, uh, whether or not they, because in a lot of communities, it's like you can only thrive if you if you work for this industry. That's it. They make sure that there's no other options available for you, and so it, it's almost like this cycle of the cycle of like, well, I would be I would be really poor if this industry wasn't here, but at the same time, this industry isn't allowing any other industries to come in, making sure you know renew, renewable energy industries can't come in. Um, so it, it's a vicious cycle that that we have to disrupt. As a Canadian, I uh, very much hear that, and it's a lively debate back home over our Thanksgiving dinners, which are actually in October for anyone who didn't know. Canada also has Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> okay, to go back to your reporting, uh, I wanted to talk about the the Twitter policy. You recently made news with your reporting on Twitter's new ad policy because it put a ban on advertised tweets about specific candidates and by corporations and other groups uh, related to political issues. But as you discovered, there are some issues with this, uh, specifically that it benefited fossil fuel companies like Exxon and, and it hurt uh, environmental groups. So can you explain exactly what you found there? Yeah. So what I found with Twitter's ad policy just just going through, uh, just going through the ads. I don't know if if your listeners know this, but there's this great tool on Twitter where you. It's called the Twitter Ad Transparency Tool, where you can just look through every single political ad or every single ad that's run, right? And so I was just going through and looking at um, looking at Exxon's ads, right? Which which ones they've done. And I noticed that so many of them were just not labeled political because if they're an issue ad, they get this little ding that says political issue. And all of Exxon's, almost all of Exxon's tweets about how they promote renewable energy or how they are working on climate solutions are, they're not labeled political ads, even though that those ads are selling an explicitly political idea. Uh, I talked to uh, an expert from Harvard about this who said that these are the definition of political ads because Exxon's not selling a product in these ads. They're selling an idea. We are part of the solution for climate change. Look at all this stuff we're doing. So under the new ad policy, Exxon would still be allowed to run these ads, which you know a lot of people would call greenwashing ads, right? ads to make them look more environmentally friendly than they are, whereas climate groups, climate nonprofits would not be able to run ads saying we should stop climate change. Um, And I just wanted to illustrate how the playing field would all of a sudden not be even. Um, And it caused much more of a stir than I expected. (laughs) Yeah, well, it really got it got Twitter to actually reevaluate its policy, right? It did. I mean, you know, Jack Dorsey didn't say Emily Atkins' article did this, um, but it but he was thinking caught the it. attention of <clears throat> caught the attention of Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren tweeted about it, and then Jack Dorsey responded to Elizabeth Warren saying, "We're going to take this into consideration." And then, like a week and a half later, they changed the policy to allow issue at. So what does this mean? This means that environmental groups can promote their tweets related to, say, combating climate change, but the same policy still stands for oil companies where they can also promote their tweets as well? Right. So oil companies can still run their 
greenwashing at. They can still, but but the playing field is a little more even. Now it's it is sort of more. There are more layers to it. Uh, the the new ad policy kind of leaves open more more questions than it answers. But that is the basic gist. Um, I'm kind of looking into right now what some of the other implications are from the specifics of the new policy because there's all these things now where it's like you if you're an issue advertiser you have to get certified and you know it, it's still it's still true that Exxon's ads are not labeled political so they don't have to get certified to run these political ads right and so why doesn't Twitter consider um oil company ads saying how green they are to be political. Why don't they have to go through the same process that an issue advertiser, like a climate issue advertiser would have to go through? So right now I'm trying to figure out what what that process looks like, how burdensome it is. You know, I've been talking to this green energy company who's saying it's this burdensome process to have to get certified as an issue advertiser so that they can say, buy our wind energy. So, you know, how is Twitter treating oil companies differently than renewable energy companies differently than climate groups that's sort of something i'm continuing to look into it's not it's complicated <laughs> that's super interesting especially on the company versus company element of it if you have a fossil fuel company and a and a corporation that sells renewables why would they be treated differently i do think that's interesting and I guess it speaks to the politicized nature of climate change today. Just that topic is somehow now being put into buckets of left or right when it's just sort of science. It is, but it's become political. And this is the point I make all the time. It's it's political because of the fossil fuel industry. I wrote this article for the newsletter a while back, just outlining some things that were happening in 1989, uh, 30 years ago. Um, and this was before the disinformation campaign started, and it was right when climate change started to become a hot-button issue. James Hansen, the NASA scientist, testified before Congress saying the greenhouse effect is here, and Republicans and Democrats immediately started working together on climate change legislation, and it made real headway. Um, until, but that same year, a coalition of fossil fuel companies formed a large group uh, to start uh, influencing Republican Republican legislators to get them to not pursue climate change policies because, as you know, climate change policies negatively affect fossil fuel companies. So all of those efforts were scrapped. We never had climate change legislation. You know, it climate change is a political issue because of disinformation campaigns led and funded by fossil fuel companies. That's all I'm saying. That's what I'm pissed off about. <laughs> well, what about where we stand in the 2020 election today. We've we've heard we've heard some of the Democratic candidates propose some pretty big, bold uh, climate policies. And some of them have talked about, quote, you know, making polluters pay. Is that at all encouraging to you? Um, well, I think that accountability measures are really important. Um, and I think it's really interesting that we're talking about them on the campaign trail now, especially because, I mean, I was a campaign reporter for the 2016 election, I wasn't even just covering climate change. I was covering everything. I was fo I was following candidates around. Uh, I went to Iowa way too many times, and um, I and I never heard about anything really beyond climate change is a problem that we have to solve. The fact that candidates are talking about holding polluters accountable for their disinformation campaign is like mind blowing to me. Just four years later, you know, but you know it. It is certainly encouraging that 
our leading presidential candidates, um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, are the most outspoken about fossil fuel accountability. Um, Bernie Sanders often says that he wants to hold fossil fuel companies criminally liable for lying and promoting a disinformation campaign because and his his reasoning is that you know the effects of the lying has me, has meant that we're now much more susceptible to very economically damaging climate impacts these are climate impacts that are going to cost taxpayers you and me quite a bit of money should not they should not the the people who put us in this position be held accountable for it there's a question whether or not that should be civil liability criminal liability but it's it's all out there and yeah it's it's encouraging. It's encouraging that we're talking about it. Like going after the drug maker for creating all those terrible side effects. Or going after the tobacco companies for giving people lung cancer. Right. So speaking of the 2020 election, you recently reported on some pushback against Pete Buttigieg, particularly some pushback from progressive climate activists who, as you wrote, are, quote, accusing the mayor of employing a fossil fuel industry shill as one of his key advisors on the issue. So the shill in reference here is David Victor, a professor of international relations at the University of California, San Diego, and he's an advisor to Mayor Pete. And he was critical of Bernie Sanders' climate plan, David Victor was, in a recent New York Times article. This caused the Twittersphere to light up. A lot of people in the climate community came to David Victor's defense, saying he was not a shill for fossil fuels at all, pointed to his work in crafting or at least uh, helping inform the Paris Climate Agreement and his ongoing work in clean energy. So this whole issue of David Victor and his role kind of gets back to the discussion of, of fossil fuel communications. And so I wanted you to delve into that and tell us what you discovered in who David Victor is, his role in the Buttigieg campaign, and how fossil fuels maybe played a role in making this messy situation? Oh my God. Yeah. This article, Oof. um, like writing about David Victor is just such a landmine field because the climate activist and scholar community are just so split down the middle about people like him. And by people like him, I mean, people who have historically worked side by side with the fossil fuel industry to, uh, as Victor would say, promote climate solutions, right? So he had a whole lab funded by BP, which he notes at the time was called Beyond Petroleum, uh, to work to to figure out solutions for transitioning away from fossil fuels. And David Victors has indeed spent his life working towards climate solutions, but he approaches it from the space that fossil fuel companies have to be a close part of the solution. Um, they have to be consulted with, um, worked with as we're doing the transition. And a lot of people do agree with that. Um, a lot of people disagree with that. Um, there was this tweet actually uh, yesterday from this activist Genevieve Gunther on Twitter. She runs a group called End, End Climate Silence. Um, and she said, if you had a boyfriend who gave you poison that made you really sexy for a long time, lied about it being poison, and then later you got sick from the poison, would you want to work with him to get rid of your poisoning later? She goes, no, you would dump his abusive ass. Um, I don't know <laughs> if I could say that. Yeah, <laughs> but, that's fine. 
but he was like, she, she was like, no, you would dump, you would dump him and you would, and you would work with doctors and our other people. And that's, and she's like, that boyfriend is the fossil fuel industry. We shouldn't be working with the fossil fuel industry, which poisoned us to figure out how to not poison us because they're bad faith actors. So that's the basic gist of the fight. Um, and I think you asked, you know, what that illustrates about the fossil fuel industry. I just mean like it shouldn't, it should not be this. It should not be this ridiculously fraught to talk about working with an industry, but that's what the fossil fuel industry has made because they have sowed so much distrust by funding this disinformation campaign. Some people have hoped that, that they will be good faith actors now, but some people are like, there's, we don't have enough time to trust them. So, you know, I, I don't blame David Victor for any of this. I, I mostly just blame the fossil fuel industry. But that's, I guess, that's my brand, I guess. <laughs> no, that's that's a fair point. I think a lot of people, as you say, are grappling with. I'm just wondering, do you think if there, if there hadn't been this whole body of science within the uh, fossil fuel companies themselves showing that climate change was indeed a huge threat, um, if they hadn't known that and then gone on to say other things publicly that it is indeed not a threat, would that change your view? If if these oil companies were discovering the true reality of climate of the climate crisis in real time, would it change the view of them as a partner in making a transition to clean? Absolutely. I mean, I think that if they hadn't shown themselves to be bad faith on the issue of climate change, then I wouldn't have such a reason to distrust them. Um, but as a as a journalist, you know, you know, as well as I do, your job is is to is to trust people when they deserve trust and not trust powerful actors when they've shown that they don't deserve trust. And I don't think the fossil fuel industry has shown that they deserve trust on the issue of climate change. And you asked, would my approach be different to them if they had not lied or hid this information? Absolutely. But also, I, I wouldn't I, I would argue that I don't think we'd be in the position we were in with this being such a crisis, uh, if I think we'd still have a crisis on our hands, but it would be probably much easier to solve at this point because we wouldn't have so little time. They had the opportunity to be a good faith partner once they knew that their product was going to cause a planetary crisis. Um, but they became a bad faith partner when they decided to hide that information, not only hide it, but fund, uh, a, ca a campaign to explicitly hide it and explicitly um, obfuscate. Why, why can't uh, I obfuscate? Yeah. To, to How do you say that word? Specifically uh, promote disinformation. You know, I would I would love it to be different. Right. Well, I think we'll, we'll see and we are seeing in real time how this will play out legally. I think it'll be fascinating to see how the courts respond here and just how much teeth uh, there is in holding the fossil fuel companies accountable. I guess one thing I struggle with is having spent most of my reporting career covering the clean energy industry is that right now oil companies are one of the main ways for a clean tech company to exit. They can you know, they can get an investment from them or be acquired or there are a lot of startups that, you know, rely on sort of early stage funding through competitive um, programs that, you know, companies like BP sponsor. And so that's where it gets a little tricky because would those entrepreneurs have the patient capital or have any capital at all uh, if that source went away? And that's very much looking at it from the perspective of where we are today. I'm not in that 
answer addressing obviously the historical grievances and I'm aware of that but it is just a tricky thing because I think people do appreciate that there's that funding source out there right now. I mean, I think that one way is one way that fossil fuel companies can show that they're transitioning to be good faith actors. You know, it's a really important, important point that you make. Um, one way that they can show that they're transitioning to be good faith actors is not only ramping down their own fossil fuel production, but using that hole to fund more clean energy producers because fossil fuel companies don't have to go away they have to just become energy companies, not fossil fuel energy companies, but energy companies that, that produce energy. I mean, the, this, this campaign is a huge threat to, you know, the, the campaign to call out fossil fuel companies. It's a huge threat to them, and that's why you see advertising all over the place. They see this as an existential threat to their business. It does not have to be an existential threat to their business. They just have to change their business. Um, and so... I would I would certainly report on efforts, not just to invest in more renewable energy. It can't just be, you can't put salad on your pasta and expect to lose weight, right? You have to replace pasta with the salad or replace salad with the pasta, whatever. So if I, if I saw that, then, you know, then I would see evidence of good faith. So we started talking about going alone and launching a new media venture. And I think one thing I wrestle with as a journalist is how to be inclusive in this day and age. I've always taken the approach of come as you are. I don't actually care what your beliefs are, but if you want to engage, my role is to speak with you and convey your story as a storyteller. I'm not here to like shout anyone down, but to sort of raise up various voices and share the best possible information so people can make smart decisions. Uh, I'm, as I'm sure you're well aware, the media landscape is now very different and it's hard to even tell, you know, what the best possible information is because there's a lot of disinformation out there. But I also fear the sort of balance is bias issue, right? You don't want to give someone or a concept, a platform and elevate it when it really shouldn't be. Uh, we have a bipartisan podcast here. And so we fundamentally believe that, again, come as you are, you are welcome to engage in this discussion, but we don't, you know, allow people to spout climate denialism, for instance. But, you know, it's a lot more nuanced stuff within that, you know, that they're not as glaring as straight up climate denialism. So I'm curious how you think about that and the role of a journalist today in talking about the, the climate issue, because, again, it's very political. Um, and I also feel like there are some historical sort of journalism practices that can kind of come in conflict with maybe where the world needs to go, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm just wondering how you grapple with that. Yeah, and I actually go back to my journalism, traditional journalism school training when I'm presented with questions like this. Um, because the first thing that you learn in Journalism One is basically that people will try to use journalists for ulterior motives. Uh, they will try to use them to uh, give themselves a platform for their issue, right? And so you have to, I just try to approach climate change, every single source, every single person that I talk to with, what are they trying to get out of me? Um, what are they trying to promote? And if I, and if I think to myself that the thing that they're ultimately trying to use my platform for is to get powerful people off the hook, 
uh, then I don't platform them. Um, and if, if they're not, if, if anyone is not willing to grapple with the very dire implications of the science, if they're, if they're not willing to admit to the truth that this crisis poses a threat to the future of the planet's livability, to the future of ecosystems, to the next generation, then you don't get a platform. And that's not because I'm an advocate. That's because I'm a journalist. And that's the truth, right? You have to be willing to engage with the truth. Um, and you have to be willing to engage with, with the reality that, um, that powerful people need to be held accountable. And that's not activism. That's speaking truth to power. That's J1, journalism one. Um, and so I think that journalists have allowed themselves to be manipulated into both sidesism, uh, talking points by industry shills, money makers, uh, power hungry people, because it just sounds better to present both sides. But being balanced uh, is only one part of journalism. The other part is speaking truth to power. So I just all I try my best to be an arbiter of that. And, uh, you know, I don't always it's I sometimes I make mistakes. It's a, it's an imperfect art. But um, we just need more people who are willing to do that, to say who's good faith and who's bad faith. Yeah, we once had um, a representative of the Trump administration at the EPA on our podcast. And uh, Mandy Gunasekera is her name. She's since left. But she spoke with us for like an hour and a half. And I think a lot of our listeners did not like what she had to say. She was walking through the reason for rolling back a bunch of regulations. And that's the kind of thing where... You know, you wonder, I wondered after the fact, okay, is this sort of advancing um, a perspective that we know could be harmful to people based on what all the professionals in, say, the health industry are saying? But on the flip side, I was like, she is crafting this policy. She's in a position of power. And I think I learned a lot about how that was all being justified and later kind of heard from some listeners that, you know, that was one of the more frustrating episodes, but they learned a lot and they could then make their own decisions from it. And so those are the moments where, you know, I really, you know, I still come down on the side of as long as there's someone not promoting a glaring falsehood um, or, you know, talking points that it is interesting and potentially helpful to get them on the record. Oh, I mean, yeah. I guess what I mean by not platforming them is I mean not giving them free space to just speak their ideals without being harshly challenged. Um, right. So, I, like, and what you're saying, you know, having someone from the Trump administration, someone in power making climate change policy on record um, is important, but it's also your job. Like, you have to be, you have to confront them with the facts when these things are, when these things are happening. You can't just let them talk unchallenged. That's what I mean by not platforming them. Um, and I think it's great that that you had someone on talking for an hour and a half about this. I hope that, you know, there were some challenging questions in there. You absolutely, I, I operate on the same principle that our job is to let people make decisions for themselves on how to best solve this crisis. That's why, you know, that's why I have people defending David Victor on um in my newsletter that's why i talked to david victor because david victor's not a bad faith person david victor represents the you know represents a lot of people in the climate community who think that working with fossil fuel companies is the best way and even though i've said personally i'm skeptical of that 
Like I will give David Victor a platform. Um, and because he has power, because he is working with one of the leading presidential candidates, you know, I'll, I'll push him on some stuff. But but that's that's our job. So, well, another person you challenged recently in your newsletter was uh, Secretary John Kerry, who just launched a new group called World War Zero. It's a star-studded initiative to promote climate conversations across the country and across the political spectrum. And so you wrote in your newsletter most recently that, um, you know, you were kind of skeptical of this sort of this bipartisan approach. Why is that? It sort of goes back to what I was talking to before uh, about just the idea of working with people who have who have in the past obstructed climate action and perhaps been bad faith actors. I mean, particularly one of the people that is part of the group is Ohio go, uh, former Ohio Governor John Kasich. Um, not to say John Kasich is a fossil fuel industry shill by any means, but you know something John Kasich said was, "If I have to sign on to this group and be opposed to fracking, then count me out." But it's you know it's it it's pretty in line with the science to say that eventually we're going to have to stop fracking if we're going to solve this crisis. Right. So, uh, and I'm skeptical just of including people in the aggressive solution that we need to avoid catastrophe who aren't willing to even consider making broad strategic radical change. Um, and so, but do you think that's just where we're at right now? We have not come to a consensus as a country. The country has not come to a consensus on the future of fracking, for instance. And so, this is where the daily education work has to happen and slowly building ties with those people, not shutting them out of the conversation because they don't arrive prepared to embrace the solutions that may, in fact, be necessary, but at least engaging. But do, do you think that actually harms things oh, right. by engaging? Or Yeah, I'm not saying shut those people out of the conversation. I'm just saying, do those people need to be leading the conversation? Do those people need to be taking up the most air in the room? I mean, I, I'm guilty of giving two days worth of coverage to John Kerry's new bipartisan initiative. You know, the climate the climate media space has a limited attention span. Who are they going to pay attention to? Are they going to pay attention to John Kerry's uh, white guy celebrity and moderate laden group? Or are they going to give attention to the youth climate justice movement uh, with no names, but a bunch of just a bunch of kids and uh, grassroots organizers and black people? Um, you know, th I know, I know how the media landscape works. I think you do too. Um, and and I know who's going to get more coverage. I know who is going to be the leader of the conversation. And that's what I wanted to press John Kerry on. And I wanted to press him on that also because um, before I interviewed him, I called up some climate justice activists and just asked them, what would you want to hear since this is perhaps a competing group to yours? And that's what they wanted to hear. Yeah, I think the competing word is true and that as you say there's limited attention span but i think that if this is framed as a competition within the coalition of the willing then i don't know that it, that this goes as fast i don't know that this movement goes where it needs to go as fast as it as it needs to if people willing to work on it or view each other as competition rather than 
truly propping, propping each other up. So I'm with you in that, you know, John Kerry's initiative would need to engage with other people working on the ground in order to be successful. So hopefully it evolves. Yeah, and, and, and to his credit, he says he says he's going to, he is, it's happening, you know, all that. So, so we'll see, you know, we'll see. Uh, yeah, just I hope people don't like circle the bandwagons on one another. I guess this is maybe my uh, if you're heated, maybe I'm unnecessarily os- optimistic in that uh, I hope people will get beyond circling the bandwagons on one another and sort of realize that there is a common cause here and that there's some things that are non-negotiable and move forward from there. I think you wrote in your in your in your newsletter that this is setting a floor, or at least that's according to Carrie. And um, I think setting a floor is helpful. Yeah, not a ceiling. Yeah. And, and I will just clarify too, just because I'm angry doesn't mean that I'm not optimistic. Um, I talk a lot about how I think that anger is a really productive emotion towards action when it, when it's applied in the right way. You know, anger can be a really toxic emotion, uh, if it, if you allow it to fester, um, if you don't, if you don't pair it with compassion, uh, and anger on behalf of other people, less powerful people. But if you combine anger with knowledge and compassion for others, then it's a catalyzing emotion. That's something I say a lot of the time is that a bunch of depressed people never did anything. They stayed in bed all day. Only angry people accomplish things. And so the response to my newsletter just to that idea um, ha- makes me incredibly optimistic because people are just starting to get pissed off about inaction and they're starting to they're starting to wake up and that makes me optimistic uh, and it makes me want to keep keep writing a newsletter every day. Great. Well, we are glad that you are doing that and informing us all and breaking stories. So thanks so much for that and for coming on the show and delving into all this stuff. We really appreciate your perspective. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your guys' perspective too. And that's our bonus episode. In case you're joining us for the first time, note that you can find Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much any podcasting platform out there. We really appreciate you listening, and we will be back again soon with fresh new episodes. See ya.